James Midling is the global built environment sector leader for Mott McDonald. With responsibility for Mott McDonald's global built environment sector strategy and the growth of services in target markets. This includes responsibility for global building practices that, when combined, contain over 2,900 professional staff. On this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, he talks about the price paid by the natural environment because of the built environment, the difference between sustainability and regenerative design, and his ideas about how we can continue to enhance society while simultaneously restoring the natural environment. Welcome to this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. James Middling, it is always an honor anytime I get to speak with you and for you to join us here on This Is Design Intelligence. Thank you for having me. When we were having lunch in London a few months ago, we were talking with one of your colleagues. Uh, the three of us sat over a lovely lunch and we were discussing what was happening in the total world of our tracking of carbon, our mitigation or elimination of carbon, and the efforts that were going on in the world. And you wonderfully shared with me what Mott McDonald has been doing in this. You've made significant, deep, and meaningful investments in this space. I was impressed that you were doing it without a lot of public fanfare. It was almost as if this was an extension of your ethos rather than just another marketing initiative that so many are inclined towards. I was impressed by the depth of the technology framework that has been created. You remember that conversation? I, I do. I remember it well. And I suppose that was um, embryonic to a certain extent, that conversation. It was useful to have your wise counsel as always in the, the journey of sort of discovery that we were on at that point. And I suppose that's evolved a little bit more since then as well. And, and really has gone through a period of reflection uh, and reflecting on, you know, what am I really proud about uh, when I say and introduce myself as working in the built environment? Uh, and what am I proud about uh, of the achievements of our industry over, say, the last 200 years? Uh, and without any doubt, I'm really, really proud of what we've provided to enhance society and the better living, better lives, healthier people with greater access to equality of employment and health and transport. And and it's amazing, you know, what we and it's undeniable that that is the built environment. And our industry has played a huge part in you know driving and enhancing society. But also I've become acutely aware that that's come at a great price. And and that price has been paid by the natural environment. And that over the last few years, you know, the, the built environment has accelerated past the natural environment in terms of how much we cover of, of the face of this planet. And we can imagine if we carry on as we are, consuming the natural environment will be successful and we will destroy the natural environment. So the question for me, which was bubbling at the back of my mind, but hadn't quite crystallized when we, when we met over that lunch was really how can we continue to enhance society, but at the same time regenerate the natural environment through the whole life delivery of our projects in the built environment. 
how can we make a building more like a tree in terms that a tree is made locally uh, of literally materials at its feet. It can be hundreds of meters high. It's a hugely impressive structure that's solar powered. It takes water from deep in the ground and makes it accessible to others. And this sort of ethos of a tree adds to the natural environment, not takes away, is where we need to progress towards. So it's really how can we lean into the whole life performance of our projects to help to regenerate that natural environment challenge that we have created? And how can we see buildings as a force for the good and not something that's going to slowly uh, strangle the planet? Mm. So we have two dynamics. We have existing stock, which, to be honest, most of it has been irresponsibly assembled and operated in this uh, kind of overlay on the natural environment. It is more of a consumer rather than a regenerator in the environment. And then, so that's existing stock of buildings and homes and places. And then we have the promise of new and we know that there is so much more building that will go on in the world. And we have this opportunity to, first of all, pivot into that new territory with this new ethos that you've just been talking about. I love that clear metaphor of the tree. And it is so simple and pure and uh, visualizable. I can see that. I can understand it. And I can see that we could literally create buildings, homes, theaters, uh, museums, whatever genre of building there is, that could play the role of the tree. What do we do about the existing stock that we have? How do we mitigate what's happening on that side before we turn over to talk about the new side? I think that's um, a fantastic question. And one that I wish I had a fantastic answer for, but all I can really offer is that what we we do to the new buildings and, and create that is not really any different to what we must adapt and change to the existing. Uh, and by that, I mean, instead of at the moment, best practice in our industry focuses on lowest capital cost delivery of buildings that narrowly avoid prosecution under a performance specification. And typically, they'll be made out of unconnected lowest cost components that when assembled, possibly for the first time ever that they've been envisaged as a system, um, we have real challenges commissioning them and getting them up to that theoretical uh, performance specification, our design. Uh, but eventually, we, we struggle and manage to do that with the building owners and occupiers uh, and we create this building, you know, that's best value, and th and that's our the way that we run, and we see that as best practice. The challenge with that is that the buildings move on in time. And Churchill famously had that quote: "That first we shape our structures, then our structures shape us." And by that, of course, he was referring to the behaviours of people in buildings and the Houses of Parliament, and wanting this. Uh, combative style of government. So a building in the round wouldn't create that as one with two opposing factions. And it's the same with our businesses. Our businesses build a fantastic new building. 
and it enhances their business and drives efficiency and better outcomes and effectiveness. But slowly their business is fluid and it flows into new directions and it continues its journey, but the building may be static. Yeah, I went to school in England and the UK in a Victorian built school. If I got ill, I went to a Victorian built hospital. So for a couple of hundred years, those structures had stayed static and that was okay. But now medicines advance so quickly and education that they're no longer fit for purpose and they're tired and they become weights around the neck of those systems to produce those outcomes, whether it's a business or whether it's societal infrastructure. It needs to be adaptable, flexible and adjustable so that it can keep pace with the rate of change that's required physically of the infrastructure to support those business systems and societal social outcomes that are, are so fundamentally driven by it. And so if we have existing buildings, then we need to work out how we can make them adaptable and flexible. Otherwise, they, they're never going to really be fit for purpose for the future. And at the same time, how do we make buildings more like a Tesla car and less like a Ford pickup truck? And by that, I mean, this conversation started in all great places in a bar in New York. And two colleagues, clearly two men, were, were arguing about who's got the better car. And, and that's why I said there was clearly be two men. And one was saying he loves his pickup truck. Fantastic. And Another was saying, well, his Tesla car was far superior in every way. Uh, and the conversation went down the lines of three years on of, of driving those vehicles. What's the performance like? The pickup truck had deteriorated from 22 to 18 miles a gallon. Um, but the Tesla had improved. The Tesla had gone from 300 miles on a full charge on the day it was bought to 360 miles. Uh, and we thought, well, why is that? And it's because the the Tesla is a big data-driven machine, really. It's a system of systems that's able to optimize itself intelligently and adapt to your driving styles, your demands, your needs. But it's also linked back to the Tesla mothership, and it's getting firmware updates and system improvements all the time, continuously. So it's a improving, upgradable system of systems. And whereas obviously the, the Ford's just a great truck that you know just deteriorates and wears out and you arrest that deterioration through regular maintenance and repairs, but you know eventually it's going to stop working. And we reflected on that the next day and thought, well, this is like buildings. Our buildings are all like the Ford F-150 pickup truck. They all, as good as they're ever going to be on the day they're made, and then they deteriorate and we try to arrest that deterioration uh, through regular maintenance. But how do we get them from that curve of deterioration to being upgradable and being able to progress as new technologies, new data, new software management comes out for buildings? How can we make them more on the Tesla profile? And you've got future compatibility to take advantages of improving technology and advancements in things like AI. And so this started a really rich conversation then about how you could future-proof our buildings and how we could lean into systems thinking and whole life value uh, with Schneider Electric. 
And Schneider started to point out all the things that improved over the last 10 years. And unsurprisingly, they were mainly you know, prop tech and ICT and technology-driven systems that had the big step changes in improvement. There were some modest improvements in things like uh, MEP, building services, chiller, uh, equipment handling sort of efficiencies and very little in you know structural improvements which is no big surprise but in the last three years virtually all the improvements had been in software and how software manages connected components but very few of our buildings were capable of benefiting from these huge step changes and advances in technology because they're not future adaptable because the way we procure and build tends to lock things in time and make them of that place of that time when it was built and huge expenses to refurbish so we we thought how could we uh, impact on this approach and we said well let's try it in real life so we were just being asked to go and bid on Stansted airport which we all remember is a magnificent fosters designed piece of architecture but it was now quite old and, and getting quite tired, and lots of its components were uh, feeling that age in its systems. And they're not because it was procured through that best practice of you know, lowest cost unconnected components. Um, they lots of those manufacturers have now gone, and those parts are only really available by buying them secondhand on eBay to maintain your building. Uh, which is no real way of progressing. So it was decided to upgrade. And so we need a new shiny terminal so we can uh, then deal with the old terminal and uh, create the swing space. But we approached it as, well, how can we unfold systems thinking? What would we need to change in those old tired systems to not only bring them up to speed and freshen them up, but also make them future compatible, upgradable with anything that's going to come out of those big systems providers uh, going forwards. And what would that do to the actual operational performance impact of the current terminal and then combined with a new terminal? And so we found that the, the benefits to um, that airport operator would be somewhere between 20 and 40% in terms of operational improvement and efficiency. And we would only need to upgrade about 30% of the components in those old tied systems to make them brand new and get onto that Tesla curve. So even existing tired buildings, I think if we lean into systems thinking and whole life value, uh, it's infinitely affordable to, and it's actually, we can't afford not to make those improvements because the business demands that and the social outcomes that that would deliver as well needs that. So the affordability equation is the value that we deliver and the value that we deliver from thinking whole life and systems, uh, I think really is the solution of how we we crack this problem. Oh, this is a, a, a wonderful uh, response to a hard question, but uh, most in the industry are not so inclined to step back and think this way. It's you get a commission, you immediately move into design, you implement, you try to beat your budget, and you move on to the next thing. And this consciousness of systems thinking 
And instead of tear down, rebuild, you're talking about a selective and almost surgical refitting of the building that can optimize its performance into a future-ready state. And that is, that is uh, let's just say it, non-typical in our space. Let's look to the future. We've just talked uh, earlier about using the tree as a metaphor of new buildings, new types. Mott McDonald works with many different architects around the world. Are there particular firms, you can you don't need to use their name if you don't want to, but are there particular firms that you're finding that are aligned with the thinking that you've just shared about regenerative, uh, using the tree metaphor, that you see is a, a hand-in-glove relationship with the ethos that Mott McDonald is bringing to this? I think there's um, whole industries, and, and to be honest, architects are, are some of the most welcoming and inclusive you know, groups of professionals around the world when it comes to embracing the genuine passion of sustainability and and they are pushing to reuse and adapt buildings and they they get it you you don't have to struggle to convince architects but it's really equipping those architects with the the skills and the ability to convince their clients that is the challenge because you'll always get somebody who's going to look at the money maybe a quantity surveyor or look at risk uh, even a, a lawyer and come in and say well it's better just to knock it down and start again. And legislation may you know, prevent those people from coming back with those arguments. But really, it's about us as a community pulling together and helping each other to have that evidence-based factual conversation so that everyone comes towards this solution because it's clearly better value. Why wouldn't you? And I think in terms of individual practices, there's, there's so many that are leaning into sustainability. But I suppose if we sort of pause a little bit and sort of reflect then on, on what sustainability you know, means to me personally, and sort of thought about this at some length, and I've come to the conclusion that sustainability is doing fewer bad things. So we're still going to kill the planet, but I'm going to do it much more slowly. I'm going to use less water and less energy, but I'm going to use more than planet can afford and i'm still going to throw things away but i'll recycle it five times on the way and so it's good don't get me wrong sustainability is an important step on the journey Um, but trying to find those clients that then will care enough to go beyond sustainability and reach towards regenerative design i think that's the the thought leadership group where things are really going to start to bubble up and spark and change so When we were in London earlier in the year, we had this wonderful uh, lunch, and one of the conversations uh, that we had over that lunch was about the software and systems that Mott McDonald has been developing to track carbon, to better understand the carbon footprint within a given context, and to allow that information, that knowledge, maybe that understanding to inform new constructs in design and operation of a particular facility, a building, a project. Where where has that come from and where has it gone in this ensuing months since you and I were together? And what drove Mott McDonald to do this in the first place? 
the approach that we've had around carbon, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. We all know that. So it was important for us to be able to measure the amount of carbon in our projects. And so we created something called the Carbon Portal. And and that you know, is one of the sort of the world's most advanced sort of databases of carbon and particularly embodied carbon that sits in our projects. But the challenge with that then is how do you go from, okay, now I know how much carbon's there, but what do I do about it? You know, this so what question. And how do you then make it affordable to take the right actions? And what are those actions going to impact on all the other things in your business? So we started to look at a package which we called Smart Invest. And so this came out of our Paris office. And the reason we were able to do this first in France was really because it draws upon huge amounts of data from the PPP or P3 sort of project procurement routes, which is um, very common in France with lots of state-owned socialist assets. And the the advantage of that is that we've got uh, whole life data of not only how these buildings should perform in their sort of 30-year concession period, but then we've been paid to audit that by the banks for the last 20 years. So we've got actual performance data as well. And this goes across hundreds of different asset types from schools to prisons to whole stadia uh, to uh, banks and other types of buildings. And so we put all of that into a, a database and then we created uh, a front end which forecast how your building would degrade over time down to a room level of data and primary equipment. And it would show then link that deterioration of your asset to the business outcomes that it sustains. So if it's a bank, it would be banking. If it's a hospital, it'd be patient healthcare. If it's a school, it'd be education of children. And it showed how through a number of different dimensions, the physical infrastructure related to the business risk, let's call it the business risk of actually being able to perform those outcomes. And if you make no investment, you'll see your physical assets deteriorate over time, over a period of 30 years, and all fail over time. And that would then show how that correlates to your business outcomes and your business risk. And we also then had scenarios if you did reactive maintenance, so when something broke, you fixed it, what would that do? If you had preventative maintenance instead, what would that do? So this was really optimizing that physical infrastructure to perform to its highest level. And then we started to look at the lens of what if you wanted on top of that optimized performance to decarbonize and to be aware of the extra things that you would need to change to lower the actual amount of energy that it's consuming and the amount of carbon that it's emitting. So that was the first package that we looked at. And that has potential to apply to not just new estates, but obviously existing estates. And we applied that to three cities in France, looking at over 3,000 buildings across those three cities. So huge opportunity to get big data and make it available to make even bigger decisions, but in a on a single piece of paper. Then that linked into a package which we called Pathways to Net Zero because you would have then optimized how you're going to run the assets over their life to meet the social and business outcomes that they need to provide uh, as infrastructure. 
And you've also got a plan of the types of things you should be doing to decarbonize and what that would cost you. And then the Pathways to Net Zero tool is really taking that data and running it through first principles buildings physics models in the cloud. So it's making a unique solution with a far more detailed number of systems choices about the types of decarbonization you could lean into for that specific asset type. And it's about your building of its place. And that uses a, a big data cloud-based database approach as well. So we're finding that's able to do that same service with about only a third of the effort that we were traditionally doing using manual methods. So what we're trying to do there is help the clients make better decisions through whole life digital insights of their, their whole estate doesn't matter how many buildings it is, it could be one building or you know, thousands of buildings, and how they interact to deliver those social or business outcomes that they've got, and what the risk is that they're making by making any changes, and then they can make better decisions around retaining existing buildings, refurbishing them, upgrading them, and also decarbonizing them. So that's really how that's progressed since we met. It's just a fantastic uh, leap forward and so pragmatic. It's one of the things that I love about Mott McDonald. It takes all of its work and it makes it pragmatic. It makes it applicable. You operate in a theoretical space that is always translated down to pragmatics in the built environment. And this is exemplary. It truly is. I'm sure there's so much more that we could spend time talking about, but this has just been an extraordinary time to reconnect and talk about these very meaningful topics. And I'm hoping that we'll do it again. Thanks for joining me. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.